Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William McGarrow. And today we have a really interesting story that you're going to tell from a time you were in county jail before you were transferred to San Quentin that's very interesting because it touches on the subject of violence and maybe uh, when that's okay, if ever. So we'll figure that out. First, we have a listener-submitted question from Russell in the United Kingdom. And he says, Bill, is it difficult to sleep in San Quentin prison? Um, yeah. Um, well, I would be lying to you if I told you that I had any trouble sleeping at all. I'm usually so exhausted by the time that I do put my head to the pillow that as soon as I it hits the pillow, I'm gone. I mean, look, I... I'm the hardest working man in prison. I put in a good 12 to 14 hours painting and writing, and my workouts are probably between an hour and a half and two hours. So by the time that I, my head touches that pillow at 11 o'clock at night, I'm asleep very quickly because I'm up by 4.45 a.m. So it's, yeah, I've never had trouble sleeping. I, I don't know... Uh, I'm sure other people do, but I think that's just a natural progression of life. A lot of people have uh, sleeping issues, but I never have. And sure, it bothers me when people are yelling or screaming. Um, that usually is a problem in prison. But for the most part, guys are respectful after 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. And I wear earplugs just to make sure because every night, every half an hour, a staff member, a guard, walks by yourself with a flashlight checking to see that you haven't killed yourself or you're, doing, you're not doing something you're not supposed to be doing. So every time they touch that lock, usually my eyes fly open. Although I sleep very deeply, if you touch that door, I'm like Count Dracula. My eyes come up quickly, like you touch my coffin. So I put an earplug so I can kind of, you know, override that, that particular tick that I have of always being alert. But other than that, I sleep really well. Yeah, if you listen to some of the earlier episodes, which I think the new episodes are getting better, as you would imagine, that's just natural. But we do talk about some of the weird things that have happened as far as a lot of people think San Quentin Prison is haunted and things like that. So that would make it difficult for a lot of people to sleep. Uh, so if you're interested, you can check those out. But we do appreciate the the questions and keep them coming. We check the Instagram and Facebook accounts. That is at Death Row Diaries. So make sure and follow us on there on Facebook and Instagram. And to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And in the near future, we'll be talking about our new Patreon development. Where you can follow us and get bonus content and other materials that are not available on the regular podcast but you'll still be able to listen to the regular podcast. So, got that out of the way. Um, Now, this was a story that we're going to talk about that you wrote about in your book, Escape Artist. And you're not denying that you assaulted some people, but you're also claiming that you deliberated on it briefly and you thought it was justified, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a there's a there's a question of morality.
morality here is a question of doing the right thing. Look, yeah, I've admitted that I've used violence on a number of occasions when there are no other alternatives. And if you live in this society, you understand that there are situations that call for action rather than talking, and it's justified. So I want to pose a question to the audience. So my question to you is, when is violence justified, if ever? So I would like to bring the audience into kind of a scene. So we've all watched the Jack Reacher movies or watched Superman and Batman battle bad guys, and we consider them heroes. And if you admit that when you're watching Jack Reacher strike down the bad guys, or at least who we perceive to be bad, your heart begins to race. You get excited. It's, it's the right guy doing the right thing to bad people. And we don't have a problem with that. Look, this country is built on stepping up and doing the right thing at the right time to help somebody else. And I'm not comparing myself to any uh, situation where I'm trying to play the moral card here or anything. No, I do instinctively what I think is right, and that's why I can say that. But, you know, let's, let's talk about that for a minute, Matt. I mean, look, we, we stepped up in World War II because there was a medieval maniac named Adolf Hitler doing some really bad things in Europe to Jewish people. And we basically did a violent thing to stop that. So... We as a nation have done this from the very beginning. If we didn't stomp out the red coats, we'd be speaking with a British accent. So again, I'm not justifying it, but let's take a look at that. And let's really look at when things are justified and when talking or trying to step away from it does no good. Yeah, I mean, that brings up a lot of different reactions I mean, I would say to play devil's advocate, it's rare that you would meet someone in the real world that is as objectively evil as one of these characters that we like to see get beat up in the movies. You know, these guys have usually, like, kidnapped a teenage girl. They're very arrogant about their their crimes. So, you know, I don't think in that situation people would argue against taking action. Then again, in, in real life, there's usually more nuance but maybe not. Maybe not if you're in county jail. You know, there are characters like that walking around. So I'm not sure. Well, you're right. We're talking about extreme situations. And in today's politically correct world, you know, we want to talk things out. We want to be the, the person, the higher being. Well, look, I, I have a real simple question for you. Because I'm, I'm a straight as an arrow. I, I come straight at you and I tell you how I feel about things. There is no bullshit in my walk. Okay, so we want to be politically correct. Okay, how's that working out with, with us in Russia and Ukraine right now? We're talking a lot. People are being killed, bombed, children are being massacred. How is that working out for us? When you have a bad guy doing bad things, and everybody's you know, horrified by it, but they're more interested in pulling out their phone and taking a video of it than actually doing something about it. Look, we see it every day in a subway. A person is beating up a person, and they're really 
I'm not saying the person's evil. He's doing an evil act against another person. And what is every guy there doing? He's pulling out a freaking phone and he's videotaping the thing. I see it on TMC. I see all these programs. Where is the person that steps up? Where is that red American, red-blooded American man who steps up and says, "Stop"? That's a problem for me. Look, I get it. I'm a Neanderthal. And sometimes certain situations demand that a Neanderthal step up. Yeah, I think there's probably, you know, what you're saying almost harkens back to something I feel would have happened a lot more often, like 50 years ago. You know, nowadays, I think there's a lot more guns. There's a lot more powerful guns. It seems like there's a lot more crazy people. I don't know if that's true, but it does seem that way. People are training in MMA. I think a lot of guys just, they just don't want to get involved. Even if they're capable guys, they're like, well, I have no chance against like a demonic psycho killer. Yeah, and that's the part of being a man. That's the part that you risk your life to help somebody else sometimes. Look, I'm not perfect. I've made some grave mistakes in my life. Sometimes, in order to do the right thing, you have to sacrifice a little bit. And that comes with the territory of seeing something that's being done not worrying about lawsuits or about anything else, putting the situation ahead of yourself or your interests and doing what's right. So I'm sure there's people that are appalled right now and they're listening to me saying, well, of course, this guy's in prison. This is the kind of stuff that he's advocating for because he hasn't been rehabilitated stuff. Okay, so let me, let me get you the situation. You tell me what you do. So, your 18-year-old son has been arrested for DUI. And before you tell me it's not going to happen because you brought up your child correctly, it could happen. In fact, it happens every single day. So, your son is processed to the police station. And because it's that holiday weekend, the courts are closed, there's no bail, and suddenly your son... 18-year-old boy is transferred to the county jail. And he's mixed in because it's the weekend and they're not processing how people are classified. They throw them in there with criminals, gang members, thieves, rapists, and murderers. Okay? And uh, in a world that you're familiar with, you know, this doesn't normally happen, but it's happening now. And your son's tired. He's scared. He misses his family. He's been, he's been 48 hours, no shower. He hasn't used the facilities. And they issue him a towel in that county jail. And once he enters the unit, he sees the showers. And they're very welcoming. There's steam coming out of it. And he's thinking, I'd like to take a shower. But he hesitates. Look, it's, it's a shower. He's a lot of people around that don't look friendly. He's never been in jail before. He's a good kid. He made a mistake. So he walks into the shower area and he realizes that it's not a single shower. It's multiple heads. There's 20 or 30 heads 
and the shower is not just one small stall, it's a huge area. And he hesitates again because, I mean, he, he's not used to taking off his clothes in front of a bunch of people, but he notices there's nobody there. There's only one guy taking a shower, and the guy looks like a boy. So he walks in, and as he walks in, he notices that the guy is taking a shower is staring at him in not a nice way. But then you realize that he's staring behind you or your son. And you turn around and immediately your mind snaps like a rubber band and you see the situation. In the area just before the shower, there are three men. And I'm not going to put a face on these men. I'm not going to say they're white, black, Mexican. I'm, not, I'm just going to let that up to you. I want you to visualize this. Your son is blonde, he's blue-eyed, he's very young, he's an attractive young man. He's a good young man. And he realizes by the look on these guys' faces, the guys that are behind him, that they have one objective. That objective is rape. You, your son turns and looks at the boy that's in the shower and asks for help. Because, I mean, he's scared. He's asking, he's asking for a lifeline from just one person. I mean, can, are you seeing this situation, Matt? I mean, are you, are you, can you picture what's going on here? Yeah, so there's one guy, young guy, in this big room full of showers. This other guy thinks, okay, maybe it's all right because there's another guy showering and he doesn't look uh, like he wants any trouble. He's just minding his own business. And then he is basically followed by these, is it two guys that are just like, a duo of rapists? It, it's three guys. Three guys. It's three guys. Okay. They, and they are, because they're in every prison, they're in every county jail. You know, we've seen the B movies, haven't we? Of a young kid being raped in a shower area. These guys exist. That, that narrative is not something that a writer came up in his head. This, this actually happens every day in jails, in prison, around the nation. Yeah, so I'm imagining that that might be your first thought was, are these guys going to beat me up or sexually assault me or whatever? And then maybe you go back and forth. Or maybe I'm just being paranoid. Does this really happen all the time? Why are they picking me? Uh, probably a lot of thoughts go through your head, but then maybe the the worst thought kind of becomes more and more apparent as they get closer to you and they're staring at you. Yeah, the body language is there. They're snaring. They're throwing you kisses. Yeah, this is a real situation. You know, they're, they're making all the noises, the sounds. They're leering at you. And, and you understand what it is. But you may be a kid, but you know, because you've seen these, these scenes and all the movies you've seen. And it actually happens. So the kid pleads with his eyes to this guy. And he notices the guy turns off the shower. 
grabs his towel, he begins to towel himself off. And the more you look at this kid, he realizes he might be younger than himself. So the other guy that's the only other guy besides the rapist, he's now leaving. He's now finished showering. So that doesn't bode well either, I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, the kid is pleading with his eyes for help. He's asked for help. The guy just stares at him. And he didn't say anything. But now he's turned off the water. He's calling himself off. You see him. He walks over calmly. While the three men are looking at him. So as a layperson, I think even I know the shower is 
a dangerous area that you should probably avoid. It's also this enormous area, and I don't know, at some point, you're not an expert on prison. You, you may want very badly to take a shower. I guess I'm just, there, there seems like a disconnect of everyone knows this is the area not to be in, and yet it's also not monitored. So I'm just wondering, was there any chance of, like, finding a guard or just, like, thinking, I'm thinking it through, you know, wh why, when everyone knows it's such a problem, is it still a problem? Okay, so in county jails, there is an officer, one officer from like every 100 or 150 inmates, and in entire team there's only one officer, and he's in his office, away from, the, the officers are not around the inmates, they're, they're locked away somewhere else and the inmates can't get to them. So with that in mind, that kind of tells you that the guards can't get to the shower area without walking through inmates, and that's dangerous, so they don't do it. So the, the, the shower area is completely isolated from, and they have shower curtains, huge curtains that run across the entire length of the shower, so you can be doing whatever you want there, for, because and it's a privacy issue, but it also helps rapists. So, as I was saying, the boy strikes, and there was provocation. Believe me, they were the two other ones who had already had their hands on top of the boy's shoulders. The one standing in front of him was their leader, and the boy now has he's on top of him and he's beating this guy to unconsciousness. He immediately responds when the second would be rapist immediately rushes towards him. The guy stands up kicks him in the groin, he doubles over, he meets him in the, in, in the face, and pounds this guy as well. At that same time, the third one pulls out a straight razor, a midship straight razor, and cuts the boy across the arm. And as he's finishing the second guy, he gets up, and now he's facing the third guy who tries to continue to cut him with this razor blade. You know, there comes the attacks, the boy's able to hit the guy in the face, swim him off his feet, put him on the ground, and basically knock him out. But now he's bleeding profusely from his arm because he has a thin line cut across the inside of his right arm. And he leaves the shower area holding his arm with a towel and goes into his cell. And the kid who was going to be raped, your son, follows him. Now, that is a situation where it cannot be dealt with any other way. It's unfortunate, it's violent, but behind these walls, like there are places in dark alleys on street corners where things, bad things happen, I believe, I believe there's nothing else in the other situation. Had the boy left in the situation and gone to run to a guard hotel, by that time, they would have hurt that other kid. I know that because I've been behind these walls for 40 years, and I know what happens. Sometimes you can't find a guard. But the other big question is, when you're in those situations, you don't tell. You can't run to a guard. You don't tell because then you're more in danger. It, it isn't how this society works. I know in most societies, you run to a police officer and he helps you in a situation. But sometimes they're not around. There's no time for it. We have to be that American that has to step up. Someone has to step up. 
instead of pulling out a phone and, and videotaping it, you have to step up. And I posed the question, was the boy justified in that situation? You have to answer that question for yourself. But I can tell you that after 40 years in prison, and I've matured, you can say I've been rehabilitated, I've thought these things through a million times. In that given situation, I would act the same way. Doesn't matter what kind of harm would have come to me, no one's going to be raped, molested, or harmed in that way when I can draw a breath. It's just as simple as that, ladies and gentlemen. What do you mean you would act the same way? If you've read my first book, Escape Artist, you know that the boy with intense eyes is me. I'm the guy that was in the shower when those three men came to rape that boy. And although I was not much older, I could have been younger than that guy because I was only 19. I'm the one that acted that way. I don't know if that boy is listening to this podcast or even remembers the situation that I would have done again. Nothing in this world would change those guys' minds. I had seen them try the same thing on other guys. It's a bad situation. Imagine being held down while another man rapes you. It could be another man, a boy, a child, a woman. It doesn't matter to me when that is happening. I'm going to step in and stop it. Whether they kill me or not, it's not going to happen around me. And if you consider me a Neanderthal, because that's how I think, then I think that you should join the Harvey Weinstein Club. So it was one against three. When you it was one against attacked the first guy, yeah. did, did you then have to fight off the other two, or did they leave once that guy got kind of dealt with no they attacked it, it was simple as that they back up their own buddies once they saw me working on the first guy they were immediately advancing towards me so I did not hesitate I continued doing what I was doing I had to at that point there is no talking you have to follow through they had other friends that just weren't there at the moment so I followed through I'm guess I'm wondering how you, I mean, you made a split second kind of decision. I don't know if you were thinking whether or not I should do this, but I mean, were you angry at the situation? Because obviously these guys are tormenting other people, but I get their motivation. I, I don't understand it so much or agree with it, but in this situation, they want something they're prepared, they're readying themselves, and you're just taking a shower. So how do you flip a switch that quickly to actually be able to fight off three guys? And Well, I've trained in the martial arts since I was four years old. For me, it's an on and off switch. I can turn it on and turn it off. There was a time when I was competing in the martial arts and I didn't have that control. I had been involved with anabolic steroids, and I was abusing them, and my anger and temper would bleed into other situations. I don't believe that was the case then. 
I was recently arrested when that happened. But when I saw that boy walk into the shower and tell me, help me, they're going to rape me. And I look and saw who was there already. I had seen these guys take people's store, pressure people to pain them to go to the chow hall, take people's food. This stuff really happens. I made up my mind in a split second. It's not going to happen while I'm here. I'm not walking away from the situation. Was I angry? I don't know if I was angry, like angry, emotionally angry. I was in a position where I could have changed something, and I did change it. I, I just can't allow something like that to happen. You know, I, look, I'm not a cop. I'm not law enforcement. And, you know, I don't agree with some of the things they do. This isn't a law enforcement situation. This is a right and wrong situation. This is when you see something happen and a convict decides, hey, that's not going to happen around me. It can't happen around me. Because if I allow this happen to happen, then I'm no better than three freaking rapists and trying to rape this kid. I, I guess all those thoughts went through my head, but it was a lot quicker when he, when he asked for help. I knew that I would help him at whatever cost. But I knew those guys were, were fighters. They knew how to fight. I'd seen them fight before. They weren't the best I'd seen, but they were proficient. And three of them, it wouldn't be easy. So when I made that decision to strike, I knew I had to follow through. If I stopped, it would have been time to pull out another knife or something and harm me even more. Because if you look at my right arm, I had a long, probably 11 and a half inch scar on the inside of my right arm where that razor blade cut me open. It wasn't an easy decision. For me, it was. I knew exactly what I would do. Because when met with a situation like that, even the man that I am today, after thinking about it for 40 years, I do the same thing again. Were you concerned in that moment that they were going to come back for you at this point? So you beat them up, you also kind of humiliated them. So. Well, I mean, I didn't think about it then. When it already happened, I was back in my cell. I was picking my arm up. I was, I was wiping the blood off. Um, it crossed my mind, but by that time, everybody was returning from chow. And that's the reason I was alone. Everybody had gone to chow. It was Sunday. There weren't many people in the unit. I needed some time alone. Hot shower, wash my clothes. I thought, this is what I want to do. So I was basically just trying to get away from everybody that day. The situation came to me. I didn't go looking for it. But after, of course, it happened, everybody comes in, of course. It spreads quickly. Hey, Bill just just knocked down these three guys. And the question was, why? And of course, there's a lot of white guys there. And they're asking, hey, what's going on? I told them, look, it wasn't Rachel. It was me stopping something that shouldn't stop. Don't get involved. I'll deal with it. Of course, rumors spread, and within three days, they took me out of that unit, which was a, and let me explain. So this unit was a, it was Mod P7 in Orange County. It was a, not a high security, not a low, low security. It was just a tank where a lot of guys that had burglaries, some had murders, some had DUIs, were all mixed together. Within two or three days, I don't remember the exact time, but suddenly they came to myself, like five cops, and said, hey, pack up your stuff. They said, pack up your stuff, you're being taken out of here. I thought I was going to the hole. Someone told on me, but the 
officers there knew what happened. They understood what happened. And the kid had already bailed out. He was there, like I said, for DUI. As soon as Monday or Tuesday came by, he had been released. I never heard it from him again. Um, I didn't even know his name. So they, they rolled me up. And I'm thinking I'm going to the hole. But I didn't. Where they took me was, as we've spoken about in the podcast, they took me to Blood Alley, the most violent uh, unit in the entire Orange County Jail. A1 and 2, and that's where I was placed. That's how I met all these mob guys and all these guys. And it did, and you would think, okay, threw it in there because they knew to get beat. The cops threw me in there because they had respect for me. So if I'm understanding, the administration realized after hearing about this through the grapevine that they had to separate you from these three guys, but they decided to throw you into the more violent, segregated area instead of the the three rapists? Yeah, because it was a respect thing for me. And you have to understand how these bulls thought. They believed that I did the right thing. So they put me in a unit with guys with respect for it, monsters, main guys, because they knew the kind of person that I was. Not because I was violent, but because I had a set of principles I live by, and I still live by those principles today. A lot of guys don't agree with it. They care less. But they put me in that unit with some of the most violent criminals there are because they figured that if they put those other rapists there, well, they'd kill them. Well, did they also figure that that you're not as likely to start a conflict so much as resolve it, so they thought you wouldn't have a problem with people um, who were maybe more accomplished criminals, or am I just overthinking that? I don't think they thought that. They just thought, look, this throw in here, he, he'll, he'll be fine. I mean, he has a murder, but he seems mature. I mean, all these things I heard about later that certain officers tell me, hey, man, we threw you in there because we knew that you were right for that situation. I'm not sure if that's the right thinking I, I had in mind or anything, but it turns out that that was the right situation. And there was the wrong situation. Because put me around guys that, yeah, I learned a lot from them. You know, you learn a lot when you're placed in those type of units. I learned a lot. Actually, it's the foundation of some of the principles that I have today, of what I learned. I learned right and wrong. You know, I, I did some things that were bad in those units. You know, I became the guy in the broom. I became the guy who moved things. I became all these different things. But on all of that process, I did learn a lot about myself. Um, and it's really been the cornerstone of who I've become. And although I, as I've mentioned, I, I had to be in some situations, violent in that unit. All those guys are made guys. All of them were associates of gangs or gang members. I was the youngest guy by at least seven to ten years in that unit. And I had to defend my position sometimes because in those units, if they take one thing, and it could be your towel, your blanket, it's not what they took, it's the principle. And if you allow someone to do that, the next time they try something bigger. The next time, it's your manhood. 
So I understand that uh, certain situations call for certain action. I wouldn't change anything about that day. I acted accordingly or according to the situation. And wherever that kid is, and I've never heard back from him, I never expected him to send me a medal or tell me anything. I think it was the right thing to do. But I hope that he learned from that situation, as I've learned from all of them, and became a great, productive person in society. And maybe someday he'll be faced with a situation and he can do the same for somebody else. Right. So when you're put into that unit, I'm imagining if I had to go in cold, if they just said, do you want to be with these like higher up gang member guys, like organized criminals, mafia guys, professional hitmen, whatever it might be, or like the lower level, like street thug, like crumb bum guys, I might pick the, the former just because I feel like maybe they'd be more rational somehow. But I have no idea. But you, you get the dichotomy I'm kind of looking at. Absolutely, and, and they were they were more rational. They were but they were ten times more dangerous. And another unit, you get beat up. I mean, in some situations you might get raped. And that's bad enough. And this other unit, they just kill you. So it was bad all the way around. I didn't have a choice. Yeah. I, mean, I didn't. They didn't say, "Well, you have a choice A, B, and C. You can go to a great unit. You can go no." They just put me in there. But when I arrived in the vestibule to enter that unit, I knew where I was at. Like, I had been, I think, in jail maybe a month, month and a half when this happened. I was a, I mean, I was a newbie. I wasn't this hardy criminal or anything else that's been in prison for years. I've never been convicted of a crime prior to this either. Because when they convicted me of the crime that I'm sitting here in prison for, I had no felony convictions. Zero. So, but when I walked in that vestibule, I knew where I was at. You can't walk in Orange County Jail and not know what Mod A, what A, B were. All those guys were the most respected guys in there. They were feared. So I knew where I was going. Now, when I walked in that unit and in that cell, which was an eight-man cell, the sounds like a college, beautiful place. It wasn't. I knew who was sitting at a table. You know, I walked in the cell, and Cole was sitting at a table, but, I mean, for lack of a better term, the legendary Eddie Monster. He is the highest-ranking made guy in Orange County. He's sitting right there. And he knows who I am, but nothing is a secret in prison or in jail. He knew what happened in that shower. And it was kind of like almost like a fraternity of guys that know what's going on. He shook my hand, he told me to sit down, he told me, tell me about the situation. He wanted to know who I was and how I would explain the situation. He wanted to know about both, he wanted to know about start talking real loud, and I just simply told him, look man, I knew it had to be done. That's it. He was impressed. I became his workout partner, and we became really close, although he tried to recruit me for years. I was told, look, I'm not interested in that. Work out with you, I got your back. But I'm not going to join any gang in prison. I'm not going to do these things. It's not who I am. And he kind of respected it because with me, he could tell me anything. His political position, 
what he thought of the situation. And there was no political backlash because I wasn't trying to make a grab for power. Hey, peace of mind is priceless in prison. And that's how that situation happened. That's what I, I guess that's what happened after um, the issue in the shower. So, you know, I asked the question at the beginning of the episode, what would you have done? What would you have done, Matt? I mean, was I in the NFL acting correctly? How do you see it? I don't know what I would have done because, you know, I'm a pretty large person, but I don't think I can beat up three criminals at once, especially barefoot while naked. So I know what I would have liked to have done or what I would like to say that I would have done, but I don't know what I would have actually done. I I don't know that someone can know that. I don't know if I would have tried or if I would have just walked the other way. I have no idea. Well, that, that's an honest answer. But do you agree with the actions taken? You said that if you could have and you had those skill sets, you probably would have done that. So do you agree? Was it wrong or was it right? No, it's not wrong at all. I mean, the guy was being targeted and picked on just because he was considered weak. And he was weak because he just didn't really belong in that environment. You know, you could argue if he was actually weak or if if they're weak. You know, he's normal. He's a normal person. But physically, exactly. he, he couldn't have defended himself. And so, and then that goes into just humanitarianism in general. It's just a general philosophy that most people have that you're not supposed to just look away while something unjust is happening. Do they actually act on that, or are they just saying it? That remains to be seen. I think often the case is, is that they're just kind of full of it, right? Exactly. I always say, put your money where your mouth is. And look, I'm telling the story because it's relevant. It's something that happened. Um, but, I mean, uh, to this day, I'm not interested in That's a good place to leave it for now and that's another story from your book and we'll have another story next week and until then i've been matt ralston